What is the difference between being punk and being a punk? We are here to talk some punk rock, some music comics. Punk culture, DIY shit, anything we want to talk about. That's that's what fascinates Give me everything. Absolutely everything. I find that, that music and comics have always been intertwined. Muxbound. Chicks okay. dig it. Don't worry. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Muxbout. Hey, hey. Welcome How's it ben going? to Muxbout. Ben likes to show up whenever the fuck he wants. <laughs> Mr. Rockstar. <laughs> oh, it was my laptop, dude. My laptop was uh, acting the fool. <laughs> well, we're glad but, to have uh, you. I'm here now. <laughs> and uh, John, thanks for nice, being here. Nice always. to see everybody. And uh, today we have with us Mr. James Burton. Who Greetings is- and salutations, everyone. James um, is the creator of Damage Inc., which dropped on Kickstarter this very morning. And yep. uh, oh, James, you want to talk a little bit about Damage Inc. before we get into yep. it? Yep. Damage Inc. is my comic book. I am the creator, and I do all the artwork, all the lettering, pretty much everything. Um, although this time I did have some writing help from Jeff Aragon and Keith Carmona. Keith Carmona is a big punk rock fan, too, by the way. Um, anyway, Damage Inc. is a story about friends who form a club. The club's purpose is to hunt down supernatural creatures and superpowered metahumans. They do it for bounties. It's how they pay their bills. But the problem is they, they, they suck at it, honestly. Every single time they go out, they have a plan. The plan gets tossed, and everything turns into a hail of gunfire, sarcasm, and explosions. <laughs> And we would have it no other way. That sounds fabulous. So. Well, exactly. Who would want to read something without mom jokes and, you know, grenades? Exactly. Yeah. That's beautiful, dude. Thank you. So you do every step of the process. Yes. I, I do work on occasion with writers that I get along really well with. I'm a little paranoid about who I work with from some past experiences. So I, I prefer... Uh, I prefer to do a lot of it all on my own. I spent like three decades being the GM for my gaming group. And, the, you know, the structure for creating a role-playing game experience isn't very different from creating an outline. And outlines are the basis of writing the stories for comic books. Just turns into the mechanical pieces about when to turn the page and whatnot. So I've had a lot of practice inside of that per diem. Uh, and the way that I express it is turning it into rad and awesome comic books where our people shoot monsters. One of my favorite yeah. things about your books is the um, the attitude of the characters. It's very punk rock. And it's very much, I, I appreciate it in the way, like I write my characters like that. Like they're, like I, so like when I read your stuff, I, I think about how I do it. It makes me think a little bit about what I'm doing. And um, I just, I always love that. Um, is there, are your characters based on people? Are they, uh, are they just crazy yeah, for, up with? Or? When, when I was a kid, I grew up in a very chaotic house. My dad was a meth cook. 
Um, my mom was both an addict and a nurse. So everybody who knows nurses knows who the crazier out of those two people were. Uh, the, the experience was kind of like a combination between Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy mixed together. I can't really watch both either show without really reviewing my life choices. <laughs> and um, when I was growing up and going through all of that, around when I was 14, I started uh, interacting with a group of kids that kind of turned into a found family. And the activity that we all rallied around was role playing. We played a lot of games that were made for superheroes and things like that. And then uh, the particular game was called Heroes Unlimited. They have a book that not everybody has who plays the game that's all about modern weapons. It's basically a book about how guns work inside of the role-playing game. And the guns did all this, they all had all these side effects, and they end up being way more powerful than superpowers. So it really quickly turned into five 14-year-olds hunting down superheroes and supervillains with shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, each one of the characters is loosely based on the characters that were created at the table. Uh, oh, for example, Gage. Hmm? I just said that's very interesting. Oh, thanks. Um, the the character a lot of people like to make make fun of, and he makes them laugh, is Gage. Gage is the really big guy in the book. He's a smart mouth, and he's always trying to catch everybody's attention as much as possible because from his point of view, the bigger jerk he is, the more hits he's going to take, the less hits the rest of his friends take. And that's based on a friend of mine named Wayne. That is how Wayne behaves. Like it, we've been places and we've been, you know, you've got those traditional little punk rock style moments where, you know, you're 16 and 17 walking through a parking lot with five of your friends. And next thing you know, you're surrounded by 12 football players because one of you told one of them that their mom had sex with goats and it goes <laughs> At least one of them. At least one. Um, usually I'm the one who accidentally said that, but <laughs> it, it, it was always Wayne that would like step in front of it and try to like, uh-uh, that's not how this is going to go. And it would turn in it from there. Um, real quick, everybody ended up like um, going through that experience more than once because we lived in, live actually, I'm, I'm, I'm returned back to that town. We lived in this tiny little farmer town and so there were these nerds that was us and we were absolutely surrounded by like every every cliche you can think of the mm -hmm. the the football playing quarterback who has an attitude problem because you looked at his girl or the 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 other set of uh wrestlers that just really like to beat up like people just to hear them make funny noises Whatever version of that you want, that's kind of like the experiences we grew up in. I actually, we actually had a problem with a group of kids walking down the street that decided to throw oranges at us because my buddy's hair was green. As a ridiculous example, we got uh, that. That ended up five days later turning into like a fourteen versus twenty confrontation in the parking lot. It, it just and like, that kind of around there. Yeah, exactly. So that's the kind of stuff that happens in the comic book, too, where, like, for example, in, in, in issue three and four of the volume one, uh, they're going to a punk rock concert to serve warrants on the owners of the club, and they end up in an argument about 
how badly they bust the club up and that turns into a whole thing where they end up having to beat up a whole bunch of people as they're moving through the club makes the entire book kind of go off. Hmm. So growing up there, is this, is this environment kind of like in the comic as well? No, I haven't really included it in that because I would probably say nice. I would never like, I wouldn't want to subject my mind to that over and over again. I, mm. Those memories are already in my head enough. I don't need to bring them back out. True. True enough. However, I did read on the one page, the opening page of your new book that uh, one of the villains was based on a real villain in your life. I won't ask you to speak on that because it sounded like something maybe you wouldn't want to talk about, but uh, maybe how, how's that experience of, of working with a character that, is directly related to somebody that you had a bad time with. That 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 character that Jeff made, like he he had a really interesting take on him. The whole time I was drawing the book, I kept like focusing on like how frustrating <laughs> it was about uh, having to deal with the gaslighting and the, all the issues I had with that person. And um, what was really interesting is that I was done. I was interviewing Jeff. And I interviewed him for the podcast and he was kind of explaining where his thoughts were coming about it. And he was actually trying to make a, the character aggravating, but innocent. The it's a mummy. And a lot of the Egyptian princes, they died very, very young. And so he was trying to put into it that this guy is, it's not that he's self-centered. It's just that he just has that mindset of a 14 year old, even though he's, you know, a 4,000 year old mummy that has powers. He really is just this narrow-minded and inexperienced child. And it yeah, was he just a... wants to jerk off and play video games. <laughs> exactly. There's peace in that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I had never thought about that person in that light. And I kind of realized while doing the book that even though my experience from my perspective was one thing that you know, there were a lot of different mistakes made in that relationships, and a bunch of it is pretty much due to the childish mistakes that we all make as we're growing older. Mm -hmm. Do you find that uh, um, you pull a lot from personal experiences when you're coming up with storylines? Or is this something that um, is kind of inescapable, just like your life is always a part of your story? Well, you know what? When I try to do stories that don't have anything based on my experiences, they're flat. They're, mm. they, they don't have the same depth. They don't have the same visceral feeling. Mm -hmm. And like, like, for example, when I was doing um, the last story, the Shadowhunter story, the one that I crossed over with Jason Doobie, he's got these girls in there that are, you know, it's a vampire and a werewolf and a witch and whatnot. And somehow in the story I ended up like having these interactions between uh, the, the girl in damage named Sarah and one of those characters where they end up like flirting with each other at a certain point and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. Sarah's based on my sister. Well, my, my sister can be a part of either direction, you know, and right. that just kind of came out in that character. It wasn't something that I planned on. It just kind of, ended up where the story was when i'm usually writing i i usually find that it's easier to take something i've experienced and expand on it. and 
that expansion lets me both process the things I've been through as well as it adds depth to the experience. The right. one of the stories that's going to be coming up that's currently still in script form is got a story about a character that's only been mentioned but hasn't been shown where <clears throat> the the character is named Pitbull Jim and he's the father to the main character Angry Brain and like he dies and they there's all this processing they have to go through and and brain holds it together and then eventually like cracks. Well, right. that's what it was like when my dad died. I held it together. I knew it was coming. I did all these different things to make sure stuff was going right for my family. And then one day, all the grief and everything that I'd been through between that and cancer, it, it had just piled up on me too much. And I cracked it work and ended up yelling at my boss and a bunch of other stuff. And that's, never a pleasant conversation to have mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. use that to try to add over to the story you know try to identify right. with what makes us human uh now i want to go back to something else you said because like it sure. seems like there's two things i i find this as a writer myself is like i'm pulled in two different directions a lot of times so you said that you do draw from life experience that it like get it injects the emotion into the story mm -hmm. a lot of times but then you also said that there was something about a character that that's just where the story went and that you hadn't anticipated it. So like, I find that that's, that's really the two poles that I'm pulled between is like drawing from my life and also not knowing where the story is going. So how do you find that balance? Like what, where do you, where do you allow the reins to be just kind of released? In the first draft, I am sending the characters where I want them to go. Mm -hmm. And in the outline of the first draft, I only tend to be very loose on my dialogue. In the second draft, it starts getting tighter, and then the characters start interacting with the story. Mm -hmm. When that happens, the, the changes and the differences begin to kind of take a life on their own the more I know the character. That right. character, Sarah loves to derail my thoughts. She was never supposed to be a part of any of the books. I literally put her in the very first issue kind of as a joke that this little sister is saving the rest of them from a necromancer <laughs> demon. And then she just, the character just insisted that she was coming back. And that's Jokes kind never of die, happened. right? Exactly. <laughs> and my sister's a huge punk fan. She has been to way more shows than I have, like way more. Um, and in the story for issues three and four, I got lucky by the way that I was on a podcast, um, Neil and Annabelle's podcast, uh, The Headyverse. And while I was talking there, another guest was there. And it was the band, The Bloodstrings. The Bloodstrings are a rockabilly band from Germany. They're extremely friendly. I love their music, and it's awesome. And they gave me permission to use them. Well, yeah, as soon as I decided there was going to be a punk band in the comic, I couldn't do it without letting that character be there. Uh -huh. Right. Just like any little sister, she's coming whether you want her to or not. <laughs> and as soon as I made her a part of the story, she was just supposed to like show up and be in the first couple of minutes and then maybe show up at the end. And she ended up doing a lot in, in the book. As I wrote it, every time I went through another draft and every time I sat down to work out the dialogue, it, it the, the character just took on more and more of that energy 
and was was interacting with the other characters in a way I didn't expect. And I guess part of it's because the more you just know the character, the more the character can show you where it wants to go. It just feels more natural than trying to force conversation and force interaction. Like uh, Man of Steel is a great example. Everybody loves that thing because Superman, you know, gets to do Dragon Ball Z style fighting in it. And that's not something that you see in the old Christopher Reeves movie. I hate that. Right. Yeah. I'm not yeah. that one. Steel is a piece of crap. It is got garbage piled on top of grilled cheese on top of garbage. And I just can't even imagine a version of Superman that would want to let his dad die in a hurricane when he's so fast when he moves that nobody can see him. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. His dad's 300 yards away. He's the, oh, I'm just, I'm going to stay here and obey my dad. I kiss my ass. He's going to go over there and save him. Ain't no, nobody who loves their dad's going to ignore a chance to save him from getting torn apart in a hurricane. Doesn't make That's no right. And the whole point of superheroes is that they do the right thing, but they don't follow the rules. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't do what they're told. That's why they have powers. Right. So that they don't have to do what they're told. Yeah. The powers are a metaphor for all of our immature power fantasies. Superman doesn't have to make that decision. He just has to do everything. That's right. He knows the right thing to do. He's not asking for permission. That's why Jonathan Kent dying of a heart attack later on outside of Superman's control is such a good experience for the character. And yeah, yeah, choosing that was such horse garbage. And that's what I mean. Like when you know the character, you can listen to that character. The character is going to tell you what they want to do as you're writing. If you don't take the time to get to know the character, you end up forcing stuff to happen. And that's basically a metaphor for every committee may piece of garbage on the planet. I, I'm glad we got into this. Uh, cause, uh, I have, I have a bone to pick right now with the way that television and, and movies are are being written, uh, and I, I try and I try and do a lot of personal inventory and make sure that when I have an opinion that it's not just like nostalgia talking or like, you know, some previous experience talking, but like, yeah. legit, stories suck now, and. Uh, and I won't say all of them. Like there's, there's, there's always gems. There's everything everywhere all at once was fantastic. Um, but I'm more talking about the large franchise owned stuff. Like when I look back at the, at the good Marvel days when I was a kid and I was just learning how stories get told, they weren't all good, you know, but the ones that were good, uh, they were, they were exceptional in how they, uh, included, the reader in uh, the experience of the story and the characters were authentic when it was supposed, when someone like put their life on the line, they died, you know? And, uh, and it, and it meant something. And I feel like a lot of times there's like this, it feels to me when I'm watching a lot of these movies, particularly the latest few Marvel and uh, a handful of the DC ones. though I've enjoyed a couple as well is that they have this like, conclusion that they've already determined and they're just working backwards from that and they're like oh no that can't happen because then we can't have the conclusion we want Mm -hmm. and so it loses a lot of the it it feels flat like you said before well one big problem i see it sorry go ahead i I completely agree with you that there is a lot of crap Mm -hmm. and that there are gems 
There's two points I would probably point out to you about that. Item one, there's a lot more out there than there was when we were children. Oh, yeah. It's too much. Like, like yeah. it, when I, we I watch stuff out of obligation, and I hate that. <laughs> like, for example, I like Star Wars. I love Star Wars. But in all honesty, one of the things that made Star Wars the goddamn Beatles of science fiction, there was nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> they were the only game in town. Yeah, there yeah. was just these tiny little projects that would happen that maybe were good for two seconds and then would fall apart. Like, I mean, come on, yeah. Battle of the Worlds. If you ever watched that from back then, that thing is atrocious. There's a cowboy eating hot dogs in space or in a space <laughs> battle. <laughs> Somebody thought that was a good idea. So that's a fair point. What, and what we're experiencing is just there's a law of averages. Mm. 80% of awesome is going to be made by 20% of the projects. And the right. other 80% is going to be garbage. That's just how, that's just how stuff goes on. And yeah. part of it's that. And the other part is this, when you make things to make money and you're guessing what's going to make money, you are not doing it to tell a story. You're uh, doing it right. to make money. That means that each movie is going to be made by committee. That means that, that instead of getting one story writer, you're going to get 18 different versions of whatever it is. I may not be a fan of Zack Snyder. As a matter of fact, I absolutely can't stand any movie that I've seen that he's made. Hmm. But saying that, the five-hour version of the Justice League is still better than the, the 18 different producers' version that we got in the theater. That's true. And even though it's better, I still... Eh, I would have rather have gotten Identity Crisis done with an $8 million budget with crappy effects, no CGI, and probably would have enjoyed it a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. And you can tell it when you're watching different projects. You you see the script and it goes, story by. If there's 12 people under the story by line, you know something went wrong. Not going to help, yeah. Right, and totally. I've been watching um, Secret Invasion, and... It's like uh, 95% fluff. Like it's driving yeah. me nuts right now. I, it was clearly supposed to be like a, a movie um, and they dragged it out into a six hour series instead. And I can't, it's just killing me to watch it. Like it's this one that I'm watching out of obligation because it's part of the Marvel universe, but it's the first one I'm really, really not liking. You know, I'm not one of those guys that boycotts the stuff just because of, yeah, uh, you know, the integration and all the different social addresses of anything. And even though that stuff happens and I may not agree with it here or agree with it there, I, I don't say I've never watched, but you know what? I'm never watching secret invasion for one reason. They used AI <laughs> in the comic part of the little short piece of the film. Yeah. They have any mm -hmm. artists in the world they want to, because they're Marvel. They yeah. Can literally call up, Guys like Todd McFarlane on the phone and have them do something if they need something new. What do they do? Let's go buy a subscription to AI for $25, pump a couple of frames into it, and have some crap put out. That's good enough for our audience. It'll totally it, make you billion. It dollars. looked god awful, too. It wasn't like they yeah. made a masterpiece with it. It looks terrible. It's, yeah. it's just horrible. So, yeah. And I'd say so, yeah, you like, make, the other out. big thing with Secret Invasion is, and this is pre-Secret Invasion, and it was, is they they took a big swing because growing up reading Fantastic Four, it's like 
the scrolls were always the bad guy making the scrolls likable and like an yeah. misunder, misunderstood good guys from the captain marvel movie to now it's like it was a big swing on marvel's part to completely change that portion of things so i think i think that also changed it because the original secret invasion series was based around them being assholes and you know yeah. taking over most of the superhero roles and in this it's it's also that it's very governmental so they're taking over government slots it's like you can't obviously like jump in and say okay here's like we're going to introduce the fantastic four to show you that they took over the fantastic four it's like okay so i get why they have to do smaller roles they have to do things like that. And it's only a handful of years ago that we did the same government role takeover with hydra and it's only yeah. a year ago that we had the terrorist super soldier stuff going on with falcon and winter soldier and it's this like a true. mashup yep. and it's it's because the machinery of the corporate entity behind it that is there for profit we made money this way let's do it again and we can expect the same profit and they're completely ignoring the lesson that you would have thought hollywood have learned would have learned about deadpool and yeah and honestly it's like it's tv and film repeating the same formula that we've talked about at length here about the music industry which is they find a chord progression that sells a million records and they go okay let's make every song that chord progression for the rest for the next 20 years like and that again to your point james that's not music that's just what the mainstream kind of large uh, uh money grabbing aspect of the society does when yeah. they get access to music but the musicians are not responsible for that whole process no but the people that are responsible for the entire thing and all of it it's like you said it's society it's us the whole definition of the word pop is popular it's right turns whatever it is into pop music pop music isn't you know boy bands that's just part of it pop yeah. music is any regurgitated over and over again for profit super popular corporate push whatever mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what label got slapped on them it, right. it, it, it's um it, it's what is going to happen anytime somebody finds out they can make a whole bunch of money like the first riots in America, the sugar riots happened because there were investors and stuff in England that figured out that there was a whole bunch of money to be made on the East Coast on a place that they thought was just worthless wilderness. And they come in, started right. making changes, got involved with screwing over all the indigenous in the area, and they ended up with a huge riot on their hands. It's a whole chapter of history that doesn't get talked about unless you do research. And in right. all honesty... History repeats itself in every single way because human beings have certain just core traits, and this is one of them. Everybody in the hopes to be a part of that popular echelon doesn't fight that particular system because if they do and get rid of it, then there's no hope of being in that popular echelon anymore. Well, I have a, I have a slightly different perspective. I don't believe that this is human nature. I think... Um, I think if you took a society of fish and you pulled them out of the water, they'd flop around on the ground and they call it walking. It doesn't mean it's their nature. I think uh, we're we're convinced of certain things when we're young, and uh, and we're outlawed from talking about alternatives. And the <laughs> result is this. But that doesn't mean we keep, we don't have action actions we can take. Um, Agreed. And like, 
you know, this whole this whole podcast is about grassroots shit. It's about how to like build from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're an indie creator. You clearly have a grasp of like writing and also just like the purpose of writing, the why yeah. of writing. So what would you suggest to people who want to create a comic or feel a little um, like it's an overwhelming process to get started on something like this? My first piece of advice, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a comic, a book, a car, a motorcycle, which I can't talk smack about. There's four in my garage and all of them are broken. But my point is, is this. If there is something that you want to do because you love it, it's about the journey of doing it and it's about getting it done. Those are the two most things. You don't do it to make an insane amount of money because if the money doesn't show up, what are you going to be left over with at the end of it? You do it because you love what you're doing. I made Damage Inc. as an ode to to the found family that helped me get through the toughest part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it because I was hoping that it would turn into a Marvel movie. I did it because it was a story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to say, I love you to this found family. And that's what right. it is. And I lost sight of that at one point. I did. Mm-hmm. I lost sight of it right before the pandemic was going on. It was after the second Kickstarter was doing well. I got my head so far at my rear, it's not even funny. And that got way worse as the pandemic hit and i was commuting freaking two and a half to five hours each direction where i was working and all of it just built up and built up on me to the point where i wasn't getting creatively i was making books behind the things but i wasn't doing anything with them and your goal of what you want to do with them is is a personal thing there are people who fill their houses with paintings because they love making them and that's just fine but if you decide that your point is you want the feeling and the validation of sharing that with somebody else it is petrifying to most people yeah but as scary as it is as frightening as being told i don't like that by somebody is in your head that is an intrusive thought because no matter how scary you think that is it pales in comparison to the 12 year old kid who comes up and buys your book at a table because they think it's cool. Oh yeah, dude. I know exactly what you mean. I just finished uh, like a six day tour with my band and like, it's not a, it wasn't the biggest deal. You know, like we just, I I looked at it as like, we want to know if we can tour. So like, there's a lot of things we're going to learn on this, on this thing. And to your point, like, it's, it's not like I was going out there going, we're going to have so many fans and we're going to be playing a stadium soon. And like, I was not living in that, you know, false future. I was like, I'm going to learn whether or not I can drive with these dudes. Yeah. I'm going to figure out if I can tolerate them for six shows straight. Um, I'm going to see if I can keep up or yeah. if one of us can't, can't hack it. I'm going to find out if the crowds outside of Toronto give a shit about anything we're doing. And... That's- that's a good point. How can you enjoy it if your head is in a place where you're not even at yet? Right, exactly. And what we learned from that is we played we played a handful of empty rooms and we played some rooms where people were rocking the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And what we learned is when we have people there, they're into it and we're into it. And like I have no doubts that there's a second tour coming. Yeah. And that's the point of the first tour. To, like as you were saying, it's like when you're writing a comic, you're not writing issue one to turn it to get an option into a TV show. 
you're writing issue one so you can get to issue two. That's what art's about. You yeah. are celebrating something. You might be celebrating your grief. You might mm -hmm. be celebrating your anger. But you're celebrating whatever it is. Just This is that moment. This is what I'm feeling. I want other people to acknowledge that. I want other people who feel the same to see that and say, this is how I feel. I want that connection with other people. That's, that is a huge part of being an artist. And mm -hmm. I haven't got to go out on tour. I haven't got to play for a stage with music and have an entire, you know, a hundred people moving in the same way that I am just because they are there for that message. But I have been to cons and I've been to cons where that place is empty and the people that are there are only there to get autographs from the celebrities. And I have let that drain me because of the little intrusive thoughts it brings on. But mm -hmm. I have also been to small cons where I got to meet amazing people who absolutely dug the work and connected with it or dug the guy next to me's table and got with it. And I've got to feel all of that energy around me as people are celebrating what they love. That mm -hmm. energy is, is actually what people should be and are always looking for, you know, like community, whether it's a punk community or, or somebody's church community or school, PTA or whatever, the ones that are good, the ones that aren't toxic, those are the ones that are celebrating going in that same direction and feeling that energy yeah. together. Yeah, my favorite things to do are uh, to go sell comics at a zine fest or um, a punk rock flea market or a concert itself. And I have like just these amazing conversations the whole time with people about similar bands we're into and things like that. And like they're just the best conversations. And I usually those are always the shows that I do the best at, too. But the best part of it is just wasting the day away talking about music with people and just having the experience. Yep. Yeah. That's what community, that's what we're all supposed to be building. That's what followers really are, is community. It, mm -hmm. it, you can have 80 million Instagram followers or 8 million, whatever it is, right? Well, you go and rob a bank, how many of those people are going to go testify for you? But if right. you're part of like a, a community of 60, 70 people that have been, you know, in your life for a long time, even if it's 10 or 12 people, some of those people are going to be as right to die. And we're probably at the bank with you. I was going to say some of them are counting the money. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and all of us, you know, that's the positive part of finding your tribe, you know, and that's, that's the truth behind that idea of seeking those people out and all heading in that same direction. That's, that's not the, the idea that we're always searching for that. And that's, truly what it was about doing damage in the first place the the guys in there are just friends who came together for the right reasons to well they're doing it to serve bounties because the premise of the comic of course but they they they're defending each other left and right like the true bounty they, is the friends they made along the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i had a one reviewer who was reviewing my work and comparing it to an older book i was on where the first book was this serious horror book called Inheritance. And then the second one, he's like, I don't know what happened. It, I don't know what I was expecting, but there are actual mom jokes in this book. <laughs> you know, I made it like a goal to put one mom joke in every book at the bare minimum. That's, that's why you get two that's or perfect. three, that's even better. <laughs> so what, what got you on the path to storytelling? 
you know, um, you, you said that uh, there was the, um, you know, the D&D group that you that you ended up a part of. But it's one thing to be in a D&D group. It's another thing to, like, be the dungeon master. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that doesn't usually get sparked by the gaming group itself. And it didn't with right. me. Um, I was, like, when you're little and you're pretending, you're actually LARPing. The only difference is, is that a LARPer has an agreed upon set of rules instead of spending half the day arguing with your best friend about whatever silly no, my shield protects lasers with. yeah yeah this, exactly <laughs> um what started me on my storytelling is goes all the way back to when i was about four years old my dad lived or lived with us but he worked out of town he, he worked three four hours away and so i would see him friday night and he would leave sunday night well you're four years old for me my dad was like everything he was my hero <clears throat> and i missed him constantly and i don't know what it was about him he had a really good handle on the person that i was before i did and he started doing other things like um he showed up one day with a chalkboard and he put the chalkboard in the living room i didn't even know it was there and as he was leaving i was like hey dad don't leave i miss you etc you know Let's go drive my go-kart or do whatever. And he's like, I got to go. But I, you spend the whole week. I want you to do something for me. I want you to draw naked women on motorcycles on the chalkboard. <laughs> so I spent the whole week drawing stick figures with round boobs. And <laughs> on big, long choppers, because that's what he had. He had a, right. like a 72 CB750 with this 14-foot front end. And I, I, I try to just repeatedly re recreate that. And the next week when he came home, I had redrawn everything like a million times because I, I wanted to do what made him happy. And, he, you know, of course, he said it was great. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Well, that started there with that. And then, oh, two weeks later, he comes home carrying this gigantic roll of newsprint. Like, I don't know how he got an industrial roll of newsprint <laughs> and he had to roll it into the house. He sounds he goes, like a resourceful man. I would just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to give him that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I think most of my life was filled with stolen stuff that he traded for. <laughs> I think every sure. bicycle I had was stolen at one point. Um, so I took the newsprint and I covered my walls in my room and I was watching uh, Captain Mark on PBS, and I started trying to tell stories like he did with his drawings. And I didn't figure out the comic book format probably until I was at the end of high school, where I started loving comic books and the stories they told. But before that, I was making books and I was illustrating them. I had this entire story in my head about these fuzzies, which are these tiny little creatures made of like dust bunnies, basically that would come alive and fight monsters in the house and stuff like that. Um, and it, it was just something I did. I think I started telling those stories to make my dad happy. He, he was a big storyteller too. He could tell jokes and all kinds of stuff. And I think I was just emulating that, but in my own way. Right. Where did the, just, where did the ahead. monster paranormal stuff come in? Like you, uh, <laughs> as see. a big X-Files fan, um, when I was younger, like the episode of the Monster of the Week episodic thing, like is something I was into about your book. 
this book is a book that Palladium made that went with their all of their games. Everything that Palladium does is based on the same rule system. They have different settings. One day, I remember getting into an argument with all of my buddies where they were basically bored with the fact that they had killed all the supervillains in the book we were using. That's one of the problems. If you're playing with a group that kills every bad guy, you run out of bad guys. <laughs> so I started grabbing other villains from other stories. And I realized that they had way more trouble fighting supernatural ones than they had fighting others because they were immune to certain things. So it made a challenge for them. And they ended up facing vampires and they ended up facing werewolf nuns or uh, <laughs> there's another story where a priest starts, you know, destroying all the agriculture in the entire area. My friend's like, oh, who cares about the agriculture until everybody starts starving and they have to pay $400 for a hamburger because all their food's harsh. And next thing you know, they're trying to fight that priest because he took away their hamburgers. That kind of stuff. So um, it's more, more Scooby-Doo than uh, X-Files. Uh, well, yeah, like a really, really violent version of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. I, I would not give us credit for anything X-Files related. That takes A, more storytelling skills than I have, and B, way more detective skills than they have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> Um, so I also noticed your dialogue, your characters are incredibly sarcastic a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. And I've always, how people well, are in my life. I was going to say, there's like, there's a, a correlation to me between, uh, extreme sarcasm of which I also have like in spades and being the underdog, being the person that's <laughs> overlooked. So, and we love underdog stories. So I was wondering, um, you know, especially you and I have, have both played a fair amount of Dungeons and Dragons, I would imagine. And uh, we know the difference between, you know, an underdog and a power gamer. And, uh, you know, w we can tell those power gamer stories too, those power fantasies. Uh, why do you, why do you go with the underdog? Uh, the first reason is it's easier to write. Hmm. Writing for Superman and the Hulk uh, or Ghost Rider is another great example. Dude, those the, those characters can walk through a tank. What are you going to yeah. challenge them with? Another guy that walks through a tank? Well, like <laughs> part of the Flash TV show, yeah. right? They love the first two seasons, right? Well, on season eight, by the time you've gotten through your seventh speedster confrontation, <laughs> you, you can't keep doing the same thing, man. Yeah. It, Right. It gets old, but with an underdog, uh, you can bring out all kinds of different challenges. The, one of the reasons why I started doing the damaging comic when I was choosing which one of the stories I wanted to do um, from the different stories that I make. One of the reasons why I went with them is because there's a very wide range of villains. I've got a story that's written but not drawn yet where they fight a plant. There's an, another story um, that I'm working uh, with Jareth Aragon on where there's goblins just running amok in a town in Louisiana. And there's a reason for it, but they don't know that. They're just showing up to try to deal with these goblins that are basically running around like the Gremlins movie. 
it let me. I, I I like to vary my stories. I do not like to use the same villains over and over. It's not just that my my buddies never left somebody alive after they confronted them in the game. That was part of it. But at the same point, man, writing this that guy over and over again is also boring as hell. Oh, big reveal. The big bad is da, 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 da. Oh, the same guy you've already defeated four times. Right. How many times can Batman face the Joker? How hard is it to make that character creative every single time? Well, yeah. it's not easy. That's why Harlequin exists. <laughs> to make that character more interesting. And she ended up becoming so interesting that she, she's getting more stuff than the Joker nowadays. It, 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 yeah. You have to let your, you have to kill your, uh, your babies as they say, right. To a degree. Like yeah. for example, the, the, when you're on stage with your band or when you're writing, it's a better example. I've been to jam sessions. My buddies had a band when I was a kid and I would hang out with them and draw while they're playing music those jam sessions are never themed. Somebody might do something that sounds a little country in, in a freaking emo band. And then yeah. they play off of it and turn it into something else. Nothing else matters is one of the, is an awesome song. It sounds nothing like anything else Metallica ever did. That's right. And it doesn't devalue it. It just means that the band had an interest in doing something like that. James Hetfield said he was, so scared to show the other band members that song that it was written way before they made it, but it took him years to be comfortable enough to show anybody what he had done. That's one of the reasons why he always let the others write music. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, that's, um, that's what music is all about to me. Um, I've, I've never been very good at being in a band that wants a particular sound. Uh, I always find as soon as someone says that's not what we're that's not what we're going for, I'm like, why are we going for anything? Like, well, grab your fucking guitar and shut up. Like, let's just do this. You know, let's see what happens. Yeah, exactly. play a C chord. <laughs> like, get over it. Give it a shot. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and and uh, you know, any any team related thing I think works best when you're letting other people figure out what they're best at instead of trying to kind of like narrow everything but but with a story it's a little different because you have to have like an understanding of where things are headed or do you like how do you do the the constant uh switch up so this is where my practice as a, as a game master comes into okay uh i'll give you an example one day my buddy showed up at my house and they said hey we just made characters an hour ago uh your wife is down with her sister do you have a couple hours Okay. And I had to make up a game on the spot that turned into a two year campaign. Holy shit. I didn't I didn't have some goal when I sat down with them. They for the first five levels, their entire story was them against one halfling with one arm. <laughs> and he would just cause them trouble everywhere they went. One of the guys got stuck on a corn silo, another guy got tied. It was just it was all stuff I was pulling out of out of thin air i tend yeah. to go into it with just a rough outline of the way things i want to go and if the characters derail where i want to go in my head because it doesn't make sense or as i'm writing it out it wants to go another way i'm okay with that it just means all right i gotta recalibrate and we're going that way 
I'm mm-hmm. perfectly okay with that. And, and when, when it comes to like, we were talking before about letting the characters have their own voice. If those voices go a different direction, I don't force them back the other way. I, I have to have my scene that like I, in a hundred percent honesty, if I, the writers that I tend to work with don't do that. If I'm, I've had my experiences with writers that do that. And in mm-hmm. all honesty, I don't even want to have a conversation with one of them. If the yeah. writer is so tied to his idea that his idea is perfect and we're going to break all the rules and become the greatest creators ever, uh, and I'll, I'm, I'm done and out of the conversation. The people who choose whether what you are doing is epic or not are the people reading it, not you. Yes, totally. And, and the more you try to make it that by, I have the greatest idea. No, you don't have the greatest idea. Writers, all writers, just so everybody's aware. You're all full of shit. None of yeah. you are the greatest writer. Everybody's had this idea. Now go and execute it in an awesome way. And that is what's going to determine if you're a badass or not. Yeah, it's 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 not as much about uh, the type of story you're writing or the type of characters you're creating. It It's is it your story? Yeah. If it's your story, then people will eat that shit up. I had a similar experience to what you're talking about when I was writing the end of, I, I've been working on a novel for like half my life. Sweet. And uh, when I, when I reached the end of it the first time, uh, it's getting, it's getting almost complete now. <laughs> just, I distract myself with uh, bands and podcasts and, you know, other stuff. Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah, I got to the end of the book and I had originally in my head, I had this heartfelt conversation between uh, two brothers who are like kind of main characters. And I thought it was going to be this great cathartic uh, moment where they can work, work some things out. And then I got there and I was ready to write the conversation. And I thought, okay, what would so-and-so say first? And then I had this thought, I was like, you just punch him in the face. <laughs> and I was like, all right. <laughs> and I wrote it and it turned into this epic drag out fight between the two of them and escalated from there. And when it was over, I read it back to myself and I was like, that is so much better than my idea. Exactly. I didn't come up with it. I just wrote it out, but like, it's so much better. Because that part of you that created them, that voice that they became kind of led you through it and you let it mm-hmm. happen. There are writers yeah. who do stream of consciousness writing, like my sister Kira. Um, and that's that's her writing method. She doesn't start with an outline. You know, she just goes at the story and lets the, the story take her where it's going to take it. She's very open to that. I like having the outline first and, and trying to hit my beats and staying a little bit mechanical. But I really let the dialogue um, scream out the voices. And sometimes the dialogue will shoot the story off in a weird direction. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, when it comes to certain things we can just get certain scenes creators can get really tied up like really 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 tied up and you have to be able to change with it you know like yeah successful stories that are interacting with a fan base which is what periodical episodical storytelling is whether that's multiple albums of music or multiple issues of a comic book or multiple novels in a series. That's what all of those are, whether we understand it or not. A book comes out, interacts with the fan, the fan digs it, the next book, back and forth and back and forth. Right. You can't have that energy if you're so tied down to a thought that you're getting somewhere 
whether that's where the fans and the characters want to be or not. That's 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 how you end up, like I said, with um, that, that's how you end up in those situations where Jonathan Hink gets killed by a hurricane. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it goes for music too. I think it's, I think we're talking about art in general where like, you know, there's, there has to be an honesty to it. And if you're yeah. not being honest, like people know, man, they can read it. Hmm. That's Taste a lot of the, that's a lot of the stand up stuff too is like, you know, there's a lot of really stand up that, I, that is definitely considered offensive, but when I hear it, I think it's hilarious. I know it's not appropriate to laugh, but I know it's hilarious because it's coming from an honest place. That person is speaking what they believe to be true. And they're like, not necessarily true, but what they believe to be funny. I should, I should say. Right. And the um, are there to provoke a reaction and yes. to make think. And some That's of them right. go really far. <laughs> yeah. And when I get that feeling of like, Whoa, I'm like, you got me. Well done. Also well glad done. I'm not you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I wouldn't There's say that in public, but yeah, you enjoy that follow-up conversation with your wife tomorrow. <laughs> it's totally, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. But yeah, that's that's exactly right. We're supposed to provoke a reaction. But it's hard. Um I, I guess what you're saying is it starts it starts with a reaction in us, right? So how would you how would you suggest uh you know doing something like you've done you're on volume two now how do you turn this into a continuous process rather than just kind of like a a one and done um well i don't think that there's a special key ingredient or key process that works for everybody some people wait for inspiration some people keep making drafts until something feels right they muscle through it i know that guy so, yeah, some people fill notebooks with different ideas until something feels right. I, I've got stories where I've got, uh, there's a story, um, Eric's heard me talk about it before, called The Bow of the Nod, that I've, I've basically been messing around with it for a decade. I actually have two issues of it finished and colored and lettered and everything because I'm doing other stuff with damage because I, I don't have the time to focus on both of them but i still love making them and not as a very creative exercise it's filled with a lot of these things that i love and mean a lot to me it's not damage it's it's it's, it's not a big sarcastic uh gunfight the the way that the other one is they they are both in the supernatural genre but damage is like hardcore urban fantasy and Nod is more like a a, a, a dream. It, it's more like it, it's more like a, a fairy tale, or however you want to look at it. They both have certain similarities that I like to run in in my storytelling. I, I like people to be able to think that this is either a dream or this is just like something I've experienced. Those are the two spots I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And when I write, I try to outline what my thoughts are. I explore it with other creators and other writers. Um, and I talk about it with uh, people before I do it. Like I said, writers who say that they got to keep this on the hush-hush so nobody steals their idea and all that other crap, that's all a waste of effort. Mm -hmm. I talk about it with, with creators I respect. I send the pictures. Hey, do, 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 do. Do you want to see a picture from this book? Oh, hell yes, I do. And I show it, and they do it to me. 
uh, a lot of creators, like part of that flow, as a matter of fact, a, a, a big part of this experience on Kickstarter for me is I haven't been doing podcasts in a, in a while. It's been actually years. And when I, like I said, man, when I started working in the Bay Area, I got my head really far out of my priorities. And now that I'm doing them again and talking to other creators with multiple of them at a time, I'm remembering why I love doing it in the first place. And I'm asking myself why I started hating it so much. Was it me? Was mm. it, you know, you end up asking yourself all those questions. It, all that stuff is wrapped up into every level of creation. So it's an absolutely personal journey for everybody. Mm-hmm. What The only advice I would give every everybody is, like I said before, decide what kind of medium, decide what kind of product it needs to be at the end, and then take steps to finish it. It doesn't mean it has to be perfect. As a matter of fact, don't chase perfection. No. When you chase perfection, you end up being that 36-year-old who's been working on the same book for 16 years and never has even tried to take it to a con because it's not done. Finished is better than perfect. Yes. Finished is better than perfect. Yeah. So when you turn over that goal to I have to be finished – it doesn't really matter if you hit the date you wanted it to or not. Those things are all arbitrary, but your goal should be, this is where my finish line is. And I, I, this is where I want to be and being honest with yourself about it. That value. I, I, I don't even know how to describe the value of a finished product project to somebody who's still working on their magnum opus on their first shot. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's music too man um like you know you finish an album i like this this last album that my band put out that we uh you know did the tour for uh the uh the entire writing process felt incredibly hectic um and uh i was going through a lot personally while it was happening and Mm -hmm. so it was like it's hard to recall the recording process it happened over two uh two saturdays uh, and uh, it was like, okay, next song, okay, next song, okay, next song. Feel good with that take? Feel good with that take? I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, you know, and the songs are done. You want to give them a listen? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, man, that, that take's terrible, man. Holy shit. <laughs> but it was the best take there. I'm only comparing it to how I play it now, and I've had another two months to practice it. Yada, yada, yada. And now, like, when I listen to those recordings, it's hard for me to enjoy them the way that I enjoy the live performance, but it's you got to remember though, that's your ears listening to it. That's right. It's the done. person that's listening to the visceral version of that. When all that hectic emotion was there, their feelings is going to be completely different. That's there right. is very few creators on the, in existence where the second album, the second book, the whatever, has the exact same feeling as the first one. They're either better or they're worse. It's never the same. Mm-hmm. And part of that's because every time you go in there and go through that process, it's going to be different. You've learned more. You've gotten better. You've uh, Maybe you've gotten worse in some cases. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and each one of them, everybody is going to, it's going to be different from not only that, but it's also going to be different from the fan base that's hearing it and seeing it and reading it. Sometimes they're going to love it because they are in the same spot you are. Sometimes you go different directions and 
you know, it doesn't work out. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, when I, when I listen to it now, I acknowledge um, that as, as Eric said, it finished is better than perfect. And when I hear it, I think to myself, I realize now it's just good enough that I would want to see us live <laughs> and we're better live. Yeah. So there's that's the goal. Of, there's, I, I love it too. Like when, like we talked before the, which is the show, we were talking about some bands and we're talking about Weezer and like when Weezer <laughs> yeah. does say it ain't so live, it is so much better than it was on the blue album 40 years ago or whatever. Right. Like, and there's, there's certain songs that like when they start, when somebody, when a band starts to play it, years later after it's been recorded like i just get hyped like as soon as i start hearing it the first chord of it i'm like oh shit like i can only hear this live because it's on their album but it's so much cooler live dude even when my own guitarist starts playing like from the beginning of uh everlong i'm like i grab my sticks i'm like let's go i can't help it it's not even foo fighters playing it and that's that collaboration when people are all heading in the same direction, speaking the same mm-hmm. language, celebrating the same thing. Yeah. It, it, like, uh, oh, what's another good example? Like, um, for me, I I can feel that way when there's certain books that I'm reading or seeing visually. There are certain artists that get me that like immediately. Like, I pretty much have everything Sam Keith has ever made as an example mm-hmm. I, I love his style and exactly our Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man run and most of Spawn and all yep. those things that they 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 were where my head was at when I saw it and I I just love oh now I remember the example that I wanted to give I went and saw the crow when it came out and it was in theaters I was like 15 right so and jealous. the crow the movie's really good it was good for what it is it, it does not have a modern budget, but it's still better than 90% of the movies made now for comic book heroes. I still love that movie. Oh, it's, it's still one of my, one Amazing. of my favorites, yeah. but no matter how much I love it, two weeks after I saw it, a buddy took me to a comic book shop mm. and oh, yeah. the graphic novel was sitting on a shelf and I didn't know what I was about to do to myself by picking that book up. Not only was the book created by this highly stylized artist that was letting his emotions just bleed through the pages, but it was also filled with this topic of loss and frustration and rage, which I identified with because of how chaotic and crazy and jacked up my own life was. And, you know, finding out about the story behind it, about it was about him losing his first love when she was 16 and seeing her be killed by a drunk driver and all those other things only adds to the story. But the second I picked it up, it's like that part in blues brothers when the light comes down and hits John Belushi right in the face. And all of a sudden he's dancing and flipping because he, he found, you know, that thing of what he was meant to do that perfect music, that perfect, you know, story, that perfect comic book, that perfect, it doesn't matter, man. The Kung Fu is in everything. Art is in everything. The second that you learn which style is yours, that when you connect to it, it's just like you found Excalibur. And yep. nothing beats that feeling. No, it doesn't. I uh, I had uh, probably my favorite. I was playing Guelph 
and I uh, finished up my set and it went well. Like people were, you know, dancing and like, it feels really good when you see everybody vibing with what you're doing. And I was like kind of riding a good wave, just tearing down my gear. And then my front man comes over to me. He goes, Hey, there's a guy that wants to talk to you. I was like, cool. Beat this guy. Don't know him from Adam. He's looks like he's in his mid to late twenties. And, uh, he comes up to me, shakes my hand. And, uh, and he says, uh, he says, uh, that was, that was an amazing performance. And then he says the way the economy of how you used your hands and the way he said the amount of stuff that you were able to pull off with the, with the, the type of kit you have. And he talked about various different techniques I was using. And he was like, I didn't never thought of using it that way. And just the way he was describing, it, I was like, this is why I do this mm. to understand. Cause I don't understand what I'm doing. But someone else looks at it and goes, I see all this stuff. And then I go, oh, I do do that. Yeah, that's true. And I'm like, that's my thing. That's my Kung Fu. And then, yeah. I, and then I can master that technique a little better. And I can get a little more in tune with what I'm doing. Um, it, and I think writing is the same. You mentioned conventions. Mm -hmm. How much is of the like, crowd feedback is involved in, in uh, how you develop the story, but also like your motivations and stuff? Is it when a personal first... exercise for you? Well, I, I definitely did make a change. When I first started writing, I thought that it was all about moments. I thought it was about, oh, dude, I got this great idea for this monster and this explosion. And I thought that's what it was about. I thought, look at all these cool guys. Look at these cool powers. That's all fluff. No, but that's not what people care about. Yeah. I When I started getting feedback from Damage, whether it was from reviewers or fans, the same thing kept getting told back to me. Wait, I can you guess what it was? I guess what right, I'll yeah, see. go for it. What? More blister posters. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. I was so happy when you found that dude. Eric's been waiting an hour and five minutes to dude, show that. I didn't, I didn't tell him about that until like I was waiting for him to find it. The, I think I showed him that page after I did it and like waited and like he didn't see it at first. And later on, he realized blisters actually like, oh, in shit. damages universe. Everything makes so much more sense now. Eric was like, "Ah, oh, I got a guy that can get on the podcast. Can we do a night this week or like, anytime?" That, that's how you get on other people's podcasts: is you bribe them. Right? Like, yeah. in your indie comments. It's hilarious. All right, back to your story. Sorry. Yeah, you were saying you got feedback. You got the same feedback. Yeah. And the the feedback that kept coming back is, a, it's it's funny, and I was like, what? I didn't even write it to be funny. I was like, I, what? And I was kind of weirded out by that at first. To, did to it kind very... of bum you out a bit? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Because yeah. that wasn't what I was going for. I was like, I'm a, I'm a cool writer. I write superhero stuff. And, did, and that's what I thought I was going for. Yeah, there was a monster in it, a necromancer. But villain's a villain. You, you, you fight a supervillain, you're a superhero. Um. And I just, I kept getting feedback about the dialogue and about them being funny and the, and about facial expressions. And I'm like, no one's talking about these superpowers or, or the, no one. And I mean, no, I never got any feedback about yeah. that. And it, it, it's, it's because like in today's world, like you can go play Skyrim if you want to throw lightning at someone. You, you can, right. you can pick up any shooter and go shoot a rifle you can literally go to a cosplay and see cool costumes that's yeah. not it 
it's about people identifying with something. And people identify with a couple of things automatically. They identify struggle and they identify humor. They're two universal themes. <clears throat> and it just turns out that I had a gift for being funny. So I would write my stories and I would ask myself, what dumb thing would I say to my friend or would I have my friend say to me? Except like you mentioned, uh, writing a story with those two brothers or having a fist fight. In the last Kickstarter, I literally wrote out a thing explaining what Kickstarter is. And there, there's two characters trying to explain Kickstarter to Gage. Eventually, Gage <laughs> doesn't understand it. And he just gets angry and just hits and knocks one of the other characters off the screen because <laughs> he, he doesn't understand they're they're breaking the fourth wall and he isn't. <laughs> yeah, he's like, Stop he it. doesn't understand what's going on and eventually just right. says, screw it and punches him. And that's absolutely <laughs> the kind of relationship I have with the guy that that character is based on. Wayne would hit me in a second when I'm being a smartass, <laughs> and to be absolutely honest, I would do the same thing to him if I thought he was being too much of a smart out. And I love him. He, he's, he's, he's a brother of mine. And there are other people I feel like that about it. One of my favorite experiences as a reader was reading Drew Hayes's Poison Elves. Anybody who loves black and white books should read Drew Hayes because all of his stuff is black and white. He was a massive punk fan he the the characters in it everything like you, you the characters would be walking down an alley and there's literally like goblin sex wanted posters on the wall and i uh, there's there's everything in it is like this just hardcore visceral mid 80s east side of new york like crazy punk feel in a fantasy world but the part that i love the most is even though i found that setting awesome my favorite parts are when he is at a bar trying to get drunk and he's surrounded by his friends and he is talking to them and they're making fun of each other. And one of the guys steals his girl in the middle of the conversation and he ends up having to go home and fight a purple pirate. Uh, there's those moments are that that's where I felt the most identification with that character. And this is besides the crow drew Hayes's work is, is probably the other one that I connected with, it's basically Drew Hayes, uh, James O'Barr, Sam Keith, and um, and uh, Eastman and Laird from the Turtles. Like mm -hmm. my 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 love for comic books came from reading them when their stuff was brand new, and then later on I found you know Jim Lee and Tom McFarlane and all the guys that are just like the beautiful, sexy model version of that, but mm -hmm. the gritty the weird, the odd, the, those off-kilter things, I just identified with them more. And that's what I loved about those. And it turns out that's that got mixed into my writing. And that love that I had for it, I wasn't my goal, but it was just, it was coming out. And so now I lean into it. I, I lean into it as much as I can. Any moment that the characters can to be making fun of each other, like in this book, they, the first part of the book is they're all asking, why the hell are we driving a Volkswagen in the jungle <laughs> through the jungle? And they're start making fun of brains. They're like, your thing about Volkswagens is so stupid. This thing smells like hippies and, and failed dreams. And <laughs> why? Because Wayne has said that to me. He says that to me because I am a Volkswagen addict. I have, I have gone through like 12 motors in one car. 
<laughs> repairing it over and over again. As a matter of fact, it's over there. And <laughs> I, I love that car. I can't give it up. It, it's, it's just a part of who I am. Uh, and so I decided that Brain likes Volkswagens and they drove that Volkswagen all the way down to the jungle. Um, so much that uh, Ryan Krobuth is actually working on uh, an alternate cover for this book. Um, he's hoping to have it finished in a little bit. And it's literally, he loves that van because it reminds him of the turtle van. Oh, so, yeah. he's, right. so he's drawing this insane, crazy picture where the thing is like up and rolling through the air. And some of the characters are literally falling out of it and shooting guns. <laughs> I cannot wait till that thing is done. It's so cool. Um, and and I, I don't know, man, it just, you gotta, you have to lean into what you're good at, what you love. Uh, the time for finding things. I think they're the same box, thing. That's there too, but you got to do the other parts first. Yeah. When you were saying you got to do what you love and you got to do what you're good at. I think they're the same thing. They tend to be the same thing. And most well, people I've met. I'm really good at logistics. <laughs> and, Is that uh, an acquired skill or a natural skill though? It's it's I've been doing it since I was 19. That's my day job. I manage like multi-million dollar facilities. Sure. And I do it. It's well, it's the same with me. You know, I'm a I'm a contractor. I'm a handyman. I I'm I'm good at fixing your toilet. I'm good at uh, recocking your bathtub. Mm-hmm. I'm also pretty good at drums. Yeah. But um, one I it's would not do for free, and one I do for a living. Yeah. You know. Um. So yeah, like I for real. Uh, you know, what I mean is that I've never tried to be good at the drums. I've just loved playing them. I've tried to be good at a, as a contractor so I can get a raise. You know, I'm not like I'm not like oh man, I really want to get good at drywall. You know, mm. um, but drums, I just keep playing, and I can't help myself. It's like a compulsion. So, and if you do that long enough, you you're bound to get good at it, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think I think in that way they're the same thing. But yeah, you know, everybody's got their nine to five, I suppose. But you don't have to be good at that. You're just lucky. <laughs> Yeah, you're lucky that you found when you are good at. We gotta wrap this up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> um, James, why don't you run us through the theme of the book and give tell us where to find it again? The theme of the book is an episodic monster of the week joy jaunt with a bunch of friends who are sarcastic and like making fun of each other's mothers. If you are looking for it, it is up on Kickstarter right now. You can also find my website, angrybrainartworks.com. I'm also a member of Scattered, which is a publisher up here in Sacramento that we also have a website. I believe that is Scattered Comics. And uh, as far as finding me also online, I'm on Instagram at jamesburtonii, and I can be found on Facebook as well. Awesome. Really glad we got you on here. Yeah, it's a here. pleasure talking with you, man. It's a fantastic conversation, gentlemen. I do appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Yes. And uh, Ben, John, it's always always, always nice pleasure. to see you. Next week, we're going to – or not next week. Next week, we aren't doing one. The week after, we're going to have Ben and maybe others from his band on to talk about the recent tour where Ben got a finger in his ass. So <laughs> that. ass crack, ass crack. That's a <laughs> – there's a difference. When you're that close, the <laughs> distinction stops being relevant, especially when it's a stranger. I don't know. When you're that close, I think two inches matters a lot. Well, it didn't feel like it mattered that much. At the time, I'll be honest. 
That's because like, of little the little inches. It said she. <laughs> well, that's our tease for next week. <laughs> that's how you open work. next week's podcast. Today we're talking about ass crap. <laughs> how close is close enough? <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, you made it through an entire episode. Good for you. If you're looking for more, give the rest of the channel a look. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you fuckers next time. Later. Later.